0: Good to see all of you. It's good to be here on this very special day and a special word of welcome and gratitude to the class of 2019. This is exciting to have, have all these incredible folks right here in front of me and surrounded by your love and support. So thank you, Brent and Craig and all of you who've worked with these folk across the years and continue to shape the lives of our young people here. We're, we're so grateful and we're so blessed. Our scripture lesson for today, we're continuing, this is a mini-series, only three weeks, a resurrection-powered church, and last week we talked about a resurrection power church as a bold church, bold in our witness, bold in our actions in this world that is so broken and hurting and needs to hear what we have to say and what we have to offer, needs our healing and helping touch. And today we're talking about a resurrection power church as a sharing church, a generous church, We're going to talk about, for just a little while, two important things, time and money. And we'll begin with a story from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. It's an unusual kind of story, a different kind of story. The book of Acts is full of unusual and different kinds of stories and uh, things we need to hear. The the spirit of the risen Christ moving through a body of believers and forming the church it continues to this day. It's a pretty awesome thing when you stop to think about it. Acts chapter 4 beginning with verse 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. The believers were united. We're told they were all together in one place. They were sharing everything that they had. They sold everything that they had and brought the money in and put it in the pot. I mean, they all, a the whole bunch of them went out. They all had a yard sale, and they sold everything they had, even the yard, and they brought all the money, everything. They held nothing back, put it all together. Sounds a little different, doesn't it? not sure it is a sustainable economic model in today's world, but it was driven by love, and it was done in response to the power and the presence of the risen Christ. They cared so much for each other. They would turn anything loose, let anything go, so that they might care for each other and care for those around them who were in great need. It was a short-lived experiment, perhaps. These believers, this group of folks, the early church was a resurrection-powered church, and that's who they were. They were generous, and they were sharing what they had, everything that they had, holding nothing back, If you read on a little further in chapter five, there's a story about some folks who did try to hold some things back and that didn't end so well. But we're not going there today. We're gonna talk about these folks who gave all that they had, brought it all to that place so that they might be God's people. Through their generosity, they put God first. And that's what I want us to talk about for a little bit. All of us who are here, not just this incredible group of young folks down here, but all of us to think about Two things, time and money, and how do we put God first? And by putting God first, how do we as individuals and we as the church become a generous and a sharing people, willing to give what we have to make a difference in this world, blessed to be a blessing? First things first. There's a story by that he used to tell, Governor Zell Miller, Senator Zell Miller used to tell, and some of you have probably heard this story. I know many of you remember Zell Miller. He said it happened in his hometown of Young Harris, Georgia, which when he was growing up was a smaller town even than it is now. And they did not even have a fire department, not even a volunteer fire department. One day a house caught fire and the whole town gathered around to watch the house burn. Wasn't much else they could do about it. And about that time a pickup truck came over the ridge And the pickup truck was driven by a guy named Fuzz Chastain. And Fuzz had his whole family in the truck, had his wife and his kids and his cousins and aunts and uncles, a pickup truck full of people, and it came over the ridge, came right down into town, right where everyone was standing, Zale said, but it didn't stop there. It drove right into the house, right into the fire. And when it did, everybody jumped out and they started taking off some of their clothes and blankets, whatever they had in the truck, and they started beating out this fire, and they finally got the fire put out. took about 30 minutes. They got the fire put out. The mayor was there that day, the mayor of Young Harris, and he was so impressed. He said, I think we ought to pass the hat for Fuzz Chastain to honor him for this courageous act of his. And so they passed the hat among all the citizens of Young Harris that day, and they collected $17 dollars. And so the mayor took it and gave it to Fuzz. He said, Fuzz, and Fuzz was standing there, and his hair was singed, and his clothes were torn and burned. He was a a pitiful sight. He said, Fuzz, that's the most courageous thing we've ever seen here in Young Harris, Georgia, and we've taken up this little offering for you, and we want to know just exactly what you're going to do with all that money. And Fuzz said, well, Mr. Mayor, I think the first thing I'm going to do is get the brakes fixed on that pickup truck. (laughs) You really do need to put first things first. Some things come before other things. Christian stewardship, and I know it's not October and November, but... Can I use the word? It's not a four-letter word. Can I use the word today for just a little bit? Christian stewardship is a matter of response. God has acted graciously on our behalf by sending our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, the greatest gift of love either. And Jesus has called us to forsake anything that would get in the way that would come first so that our ultimate allegiance might be to the God who loves us who gave himself for us, and for the next couple of minutes, I want us to think about two areas where we can put God first in our lives. There are many others, but these two just seem to, to jump out. The two areas are time and money, and I want to start with money. Start with some expressions that we might have used or we might have heard. Some of us have probably used these expressions today. I'm sorry, but I just don't have time to say about that. Or my life has grown more and more complicated and busy and and complex and I don't seem to have the time that I used to. Or if it's not one thing, it's separate other things and my time's not my own anymore and why don't you ask so-and-so to do it for you? He or she has so much more time than I do. Do you recognize any of those statements? Chances are we've made one of those statements, maybe even today. Keeping them in mind now, let me state three obvious facts, and some of you please check me on my math. I think I'm close. Number one, we are all given 87,000 hours in a year. Number two, we all have 24 hours a day. And number three, the way we we spend our allotted time is determined to a great extent by the choices that we make in our lives every day. Small choices, big choices, the way we use our time, for the most part, we choose that. So my purpose here is for us to seriously consider our concept of time within this framework of Christian stewardship, of generosity, of God's graciousness. My purpose is not to heap guilt upon guilt on you. We, most of us, carry enough guilt already to break us down and to cause us to struggle, and you don't need to come here of all places and have more guilt heaped upon your shoulders, but just some things to think about, how we spend our time. One way, we say, well, I just don't have time to see about that. And in light of the fact of all that we've said so far concerning time and the choices we make, wouldn't it be more honest to say I'd rather not do that right now? I've got some other things that I've chosen I want to do before I do this, and I just don't want to do that right now. Or we might say I don't seem to have the time that I used to. Well, we all still have 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. I know sometimes we wish for, um, and I'm an old Beatles fan of course and I remember the song eight days a week but even with eight days a week I'm not sure we could get it done but we still have 24 hours in a day wouldn't it be closer to the truth to say I choose to spend my time differently than I did then and my time is not my own anymore here's something that shouldn't shock any of us it never was our time time is a gift from God We use it and ultimately give an account for the way we use it, but I believe the more important thing here is to say there are too many people, too many things demanding my time, how I'll use my 24 hours a day. And when we say that, we need to stop and say, I'm going to quit blaming myself, quit blaming all the external influences of my life, and then take it on me, internal choices. And then we all say sometimes, but he or she has more time than I do. That's not true. The truth is we have the same amount of time. We choose to spend it differently. Now, I do understand sometimes life brings some circumstances and lays them on our front doorstep, and we've got to deal with it. It may be an illness of ourselves or somebody we care about. It may be an accident. It may be something has happened that we just did not anticipate, and we have to deal with that. But still, for the most part, we have some choices. And so we're talking about a resurrection power church. It's a generous church. And we're talking about time and putting God first in the way we use our time. And what goes to the front of the line? What's first? It's just something we need to have so much a part of us. We don't have to think about it every time. What are the things that compete most for our time? Family demands, work demands, school and education demands, other things always crowding in on us. They're all of critical importance, and we don't fault folks. I don't fault folks for spending huge amounts of time caring for their families, working, showing up when you say you're gonna show up. Education, it's important. It's a a short part of your life, but it's so important. I don't think Jesus would ever advocate irresponsibility in that regard, but for the Christian, for you and me, these things, these demands kinda get in line behind our love for God and the way we use our time for God so how do we put our time first when it comes to God what are some things that we can do and these things I'm going to suggest are very traditional but that's okay because God's been around a long time so let's let's think about these for just a moment one way is by establishing a personal time of daily devotion and prayer and many of you may have that already if not I hope that's something you'll consider Find that time. John Killinger, a writer that I, I used to read several years ago, told a story about a woman who was a dairy farmer's wife in Wisconsin. And she worked hard. She got up about 4.30 every morning, worked till about 10.30 every evening, put in a full day on a dairy farm. But she had been feeling like God was telling her, you need to spend more time in prayer and in Scripture. You need to find that time. You need to do it every day. She thought to herself, "I get up at 4:30. I' work till 10:30 in the evening."." No. So she finally decided, "I need to pay attention to this voice." She started getting up at four o'clock and praying every morning and reading the scripture, and she said it became the most significant time of her day, the most important part of her life. And she did it for a while. and God called her to preach, called her to be a pastor. Now, don't let that scare you off from getting up early and praying every morning. Don't let that frighten you, but it could happen. If we put God first during the first part of the day, then it becomes easier to keep God first in everything we say and do throughout the day. Find that time that works for you. How do we put God first in the way we spend our time? By making public worship a top priority. And there will be churches, bodies of believers wherever you go. There's certainly one here that loves all of you, that loves all of us, a place that's important and we have to make it high up on our radar screen, the legitimate excuses, there are such critters as those, and they roam the face of the earth, and sometimes we have to understand that. Something happens. We just literally cannot be here. But one of my assumptions is at this point is, and I haven't done a Gallup poll to back this up, but that if we make it our number one priority and our number one commitment to be here as often as we can, then we're going to end up here about nine times out of ten. I know the research, and I've read, Many of the articles, and some of you had too, about folks who used to come to church four, sometimes five Sundays a month, but now come one or two maybe or maybe a couple of times a quarter and still think of themselves as very, very active. And I know that the time has changed, but to make worship a priority, we need each other. We need to be in this place. We need to be in a place of worship. John Ed Matheson, when he was at Fraser Memorial Church in Montgomery, Told, he told lots of wonderful stories. He told this story about one year they did a stewardship thing and people filled out these cards and they said, this is how many times I'm going to be in church the next year. And anyway, it was January or February. He got there early one morning. There was some snow and ice on the ground. It was hard to get around. The road conditions were treacherous. And one of the oldest women in the church was there before he was. She was there with her walker. She was a bit feeble. And he said, what in the world are you doing here? On a day like this, she said, I didn't have a choice. He said, what do you mean you didn't have a choice? She said, that little card we filled out, I said I'd be here 50 Sundays this year and I know two Sundays I'm going to be away to be with my kids and my grandkids. So I didn't have a choice. (laughs) What do you mean asking me what am I doing here? How do we put God first in the way we spend our time? Maybe by the way we love and care for and serve one another. And there are always going to be folk around us. There are right now who need an encouraging word. That story I read a moment ago from Acts mentioned a guy, a Levi from the tribe of Levi. His name was Joseph from an area called Cyprus. And they nicknamed him Barnabas. That's a wonderful nickname. If anybody ever hangs that tag on you, it means son or daughter of encouragement. Barnabas, What a wonderful name. And I thought about that earlier. I don't know too many folk named Barnabas, but I do remember back in my high school days, I used to rush home from school, sit down in front of the television, and turn on my favorite soap opera, which was Dark Shadows. And I don't know if any of you remember that or not, but the lead character was a guy named Jonathan Fred. He played a role called Barnabas Collins, and he was a a pretty cool vampire. But... (laughs) The name Barnabas means son or daughter of encouragement. So if somebody gives you that as a nickname, take that as a compliment. There are folks all around you who physically, emotionally, spiritually need some encouragement. And that's part of how we put God first, by putting others first. One more comment about time and then just a a quick word about money and we'll be on our way. But if we put God first in regard to our time, then the question always comes up, how do we meet all of our other obligations? We've got to study, we've got to work, we've got other things to do. Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first God's kingdom and all these things will be yours as well. Put God first. Let God work the other things out with you. And now the money thing. Money talks, and if that's true, then what is money saying about our priorities and what's important in our lives? We might claim and we might honestly believe that in regard to our money, God comes first, but we need to check ourselves out. Checkbook register, and I know some folks don't use a real registry anymore. It's an online kind of thing or some way of keeping up with what's coming in and what's going out. But our checkbook register, if it took the stand The witness stand, could it speak in our defense? How do we use those resources that God has so mightily blessed us with? Jesus says emphatically we cannot serve God money. Some scholars regard this as a concealed disjunctive. In other words, what Jesus is actually saying is you must serve God or money. What leads us to hoard material possessions and to give a supreme position to something other than God that ought to be given only to God, a lot of it is greed. Greed is deep-seated in the human heart, and only by the grace of God do we start to root that out. And it shows up in so many ways, and we don't want to recognize it, we don't want to think about it, but greed is a reality. Undue anxiety as to our preparation for the days to come, Jesus is not saying don't think about it, Completely don't ever worry about what you're going to put on your back or is there going to be a roof over your head or food on your table. He's not urging irresponsibility, I don't believe. Rather, he's saying that whatever tomorrow might bring, we have a creator God who knows us and loves us and wants to provide for us. Maybe not all of our greeds, but certainly all of our needs. How do we put God first in our giving, with our financial resources by committing even our money into his service. So often that's the one thing that we, we don't do. We sort of get into the leftover mode or the tipping mode. And there's a story, and it was back during the dark ages. I don't know if it's a true story or not. Some stories are true stories and some stories are truth stories. And this is a truth story that may or may not be a true story, but back in the dark ages, during that period of history, There was a group of almost Christians who infiltrated the church. It was during this period of history that Christianity made its greatest impact in Northern Europe, and large numbers of a tribe of Franks professed the Christian faith, and they presented themselves for baptism by immersion. We offer that form here, we don't do it often, but we offer it, so they offered themselves for baptism by immersion, but they weren't sure they wanted to give up their warring Ways. They sort of enjoyed their violence. They weren't ready to turn it loose. So, as they walked into the river to be baptized, they held one hand up out of the river so that they could later say, This hand has not been baptized, and I can continue to swing a battle axe whenever I find myself in a place of difficulty. Now, most folks don't bring battle axes to church anymore. Not even to meetings. Um, but we do bring sometimes a checkbook or a cell phone with financial information or a credit card. Do we hold those things up out of the water, so to speak, when we're baptized? E. Stanley Jones was a great Methodist writer and speaker. Many years ago. But he had this to say about money being a servant and not a master. I've always thought money makes a terrific servant. It's a terrible master. But this is what he said. I master money by making it minister to my needs and to the needs of others. If money makes me more mentally, physically, and spiritually fit for the purposes of the kingdom of God, then it's a servant. Of the kingdom. One more story, and I know this one happened because I was there, and I really hadn't forgotten it yet. It kind of stuck with me. It was in a Sundays, an adult Sunday school class several years ago, and the class was talking about money and possessions. You know, Jesus had more to say about that than anything except love and they were talking about money and and possessions and going round and round about it and I don't remember the exact chapter and verse but I do remember one guy who was considered very well-to-do in that community very wealthy showed up in church every Sunday and he stood up and he said I get so tired about hearing all this stuff about the dangers of money and possessions I'm just tired of it and about that time, a woman spoke up and she said, Yeah, me too. You can have money and Jesus both. And she was right, of course, unless the money comes first. Amen.